I think we've really denatured our understanding of our own intelligence when we speak of intelligence as an IQ. It's the ability to reason in an abstract fashion. That's a part of our intelligence. But to me, the foundation of our intelligence is sensitivity. Intelligence is grounded sensitivity. And to bring sensitivity back to the body, back to the pelvic floor especially, is to enable yourself to live more intelligently. Hey folks, welcome to the Brilliant Body Podcast, a forum to learn about and liberate the brilliance of your body and ultimately to expand the meaning and experience of intelligence. Join me, Ali Mazay, and other body masters to explore pioneering and varied perspectives on what it means and feels like to be embodied. So many people feel disconnected from their bodies due to emotional or physical pain or even conditioning and lack of education. Others feel quite at home in their bodies yet want to learn to have more pleasure, awareness, and access to the body's guidance. This podcast is for everybody. Each one of my trailblazing guests has studied their own bodies and others' bodies for decades and will share their expertise and unique mission, how to thrive as a body. So join us and reclaim your body's brilliance. I'm so excited to share with you my amazing guest, Philip Shepard, who is recognized as a leader in the global embodiment movement. He's the creator of the Embodied Present Process, TEP, which provides both potent insights into how our culture desensitizes the body and a series of over 150 practices to help people renew their sensitivity to the world and reclaim their calm, centered presence in it. He shares TEP worldwide through in-person workshops and facilitator trainings and has articulated the need for a new, more embodied way of being in two books, Radical Wholeness and New Self, New World. Both books identify the causes, perils, and challenges of our culture's disembodiment, and they're both brilliant, as is my guest, Philip Shepard. It's so good to see you, Ali. So good to see you. It's been too long. How does that happen? I don't even know. A lot of life has happened, that's for sure. A lot of life has happened. Oh my goodness, yes. New life, some death along the way. Yeah. All kinds of stuff. Feeling pretty good. You look like you feel pretty good. I almost never have a chance to talk about my work with someone who knows it. Really? To the bones. Yeah, I mean... You know it. Other people have sampled it or read a book, but it's not the same. So it's very, it's very special for me. It really touches me. Even while I was reading your bio that I recorded before you arrived, I was like, pelvic bowl, pelvic bowl. (laughs) It has been one of the most transformational um, I won't just say insights because sight tends to feel a little more up here, but expansions, I would say, yeah, with this touchstone premise that you gave me, Philip, of always coming home to that lower 
expansive place in the body that it's instantaneous. And why don't we start there? Because it's such a cornerstone of what you teach and it opens a whole universe in people's experience of their bodies and their selves certainly did mine. So tell us about the pelvic bowl and what it can do for us. My deepest debt, I think, is to cultures other than my own that have held up possibilities to which my culture is basically dulled or in active neglect of. When I was 18, I took a bike trip and ended up in Japan studying classical Japanese no theater, which is this august, consummate, refined, delicate, deep, deep feeling art form. And in that culture, the source of one's art is hara, which is the Japanese word for belly. But I mean, you can't translate it as belly because in the West, belly is this area that's prone to indigestion and weight gain and an embarrassment or a source of vanity. But hara is none of those. It's this other way of knowing, this deep source of repose in the present and in the body and on the earth. And it is a source of attunement rather than the sort of objective knowing that we're so schooled in. And so there's this long, long history in the West that you can trace through language and art, whereby in the late Paleolithic and early Neolithic, our center was in the belly. And when I say our center was in the belly, I'm not talking about center of gravity. It is where we experienced our thinking, where we experienced our relationships with the world. We felt them from that place. And then there's this migration initiated by the Neolithic revolution. We discovered agriculture. We started domesticating animals. We took charge of the world around us. And as that happened, we started taking charge of the self and that center moved up through the body. And you can trace this in Homer's day. And I, I don't know why others don't puzzle over this a little bit more. Homer uses this word freen. P-H-R-E-N, over and over and over in both of his epics. Well, to translate freen into English, it means mind, but it also means diaphragm. And it's not that their anatomy was mistaken. It's that that is where they experienced their thinking. That was the center of their mind. And there's one translator who preserves that sense, Richmond Lattimore, and he'll have a character occasionally say something like, the mind within my breast understands your words. And then by Plato's day, we're in our heads. And that's where we've been. And we are so deliberately trained to mistrust the body and put our faith in the head. When you look at the public school system, if your body, if you can't control your body, if you're restless, you are punished. If you can't sit still, you're punished. So to suppress the body's energy is identical to suppressing the body's intelligence. And in the meantime, you're told to fill your head with these ideas as you pay attention to the head of the class. 
if you don't do that, you're punished. And if you're successful at that, you're rewarded. So it's 12 years of this system of reward and punishment that trains us to believe that in order to think clearly, we have to contract our thinking into the head and dull ourselves to what's taking place below the neck. And I remember a time when I bought into that, when I thought of, I, I can outthink anything if I'm within that capsule of intelligence enclosed by the head. And the reality is that the body feels the present. The body recognizes that it belongs to the world. It belongs to the trees and the butterflies and the clouds. It feels kinship in all of that. And the body realizes that everything is alive. You can hold a pebble in your hand and to come into felt relationship with it is to feel its presence feeling you. And we have turned our back on all of what the body feels and understands and realizes. Do you feel like the whole world is sentient? Do you consider the whole world to be sentient or at least all natural things in it? Let me come at it from a slightly different point. The whole is alive in the way that the body is alive. And nothing happens within the whole that doesn't affect everything else. So there is this unthinkable sensitivity within the whole. And if you look at the whole and its evolution, there is a love, I would say, that moves it forward. There is a, a sense of play that moves it forward. It's different from teleology. It's not that it's aiming at an outcome. It is at play and it loves life and it will it will bring life along wherever it can it vents at the ocean floor that are too hot to sustain life but it does in a different way it can go up a mountain and there's life you can go into a desert and there's life and so if the whole is alive and the whole lives in every part of it then every part of it participates in that aliveness that awareness that sentience if you want what about plastic? I can hold a plastic pen and feel its presence. Mm. And I can feel it feeling me. Even plastic? Yeah, yeah. You go back to our word consciousness. I mean, we're all about raising our consciousness and becoming more conscious. Well, consciousness, you break it down. You go to the etymology of the word conscious. And it comes from a Latin word, root that means to be mutually aware. Mm. To be mutually aware. Consciousness isn't like lightning in a bottle where we hoard it within ourselves. Consciousness is held in relationship, whether it's with the sun or whether it's with a plastic pen whose material was forged in stars as, as ours was, the, the very fabric of everything around me is the fabric of which I myself am constituted. Mm. Okay, wait. So that definition implies a dialectic then, that there isn't just a single 
entity or a single participant in that, that there are two. And one of the things that I'm grappling with a lot is the language we use to describe our relationship, which implies two as well, to our bodies, as opposed to being a body, which is the language I'm tending to use these days. While we're alive, we are more or less, and probably on a spectrum merged with it on a good day, in a good moment anyway. And yet there's still this view that we talk about relationship to the body all the time, which I find disturbing (laughs) because again, it implies a mutuality at best, but there's still some distance implied within that. There's still a duality. Do you agree with that? Or what do you think of that? Or what do you make of that? I defer to Ian McGilchrist. I just find him so deeply insightful and and clear. The main thing he writes about is the stark differences between the right hemisphere and the left hemisphere of the brain. I mean, it's not that we have a brain in the head. We have two brains in the head. That's how um, clearly distinguished they are in their functionality. And the right brain attunes to wholeness. The right brain is grounded in reality in, in a way the, the left brain just isn't. The left brain decontextualizes. It strips context away, which is the process of abstraction, to focus. And McGilchrist is clear, we need both. And he gives the example of a pigeon looking for grains among the pebbles and that ability to focus and see the difference between the tiny pebble and the grain At the same time, that pigeon has to take in the whole to be on the lookout for predators. So there is a complementarity. You know, you can call it a duality if you want. I I see it as as a, all there is in the universe is a marriage of complementary opposites. That is what moves everything forward. So within ourselves, there is value in being able to place your awareness on a part of the body that's in distress. And so in that sense, you're coming into relationship with it, which implies um, a duality. And then there's the possibility of dropping into the body and feeling your awareness dilate as you land in the pelvic bowl, as you land on the pelvic floor and attune to this unknowable whole that can be felt in every exquisite detail. I love this. And obviously there are times where we do need to distinguish the pebble from the seed or the grain or the edible substance. And we're doing that, of course, all the time. We have to make those distinctions. But I love that, of course, it is a combination. And there is a continuum and an oscillation between the two. And sometimes they merge. And sometimes we're far more one than the other. And unfortunately, we do in this culture tend to slice and dice stuff a lot more than feel and experience the wholeness. Yeah. And McGilchrist physiologically distinguishes between right hemisphere and left hemisphere in ways that are unspeakably brilliant. The ground of my research, if you can call it that, isn't in science, but is in experience. And so what he finds physiologically 
through phenomenal research, I experience not as right hemisphere, left hemisphere, but as head and pelvic bowl. So as I return to the pelvic bowl, as you say, come home to it, as I drop the center of my awareness, it's like reversing that journey that we made from the early Neolithic up into the head. So let's take it in the other direction, see what happens. And as I do, and as I land on the perineum, I I land in wholeness. And McGillicrist would say, yeah, as you just implied, we are so desperately left-brained. We have forgotten the wholeness. And I would phrase that as we are so headist that we have forgotten how to come to rest in the body, on the earth, in the present. I think my favorite exercise of yours illustrates this descent and and the magic of it and the opportunity of it when you ask people to focus on their head and ask a question and listen for the answer then drop awareness into the heart area and ask the same question to which you'll likely get a different answer to dropping your consciousness into your pelvic bowl and asking that question once again. And the answer is entirely different and perhaps not an answer at all (laughs) because none might be needed from that deeper place. It was such a revelation to experience that difference. It really has quite an impact. What we've neglected is that there is a geography to the body's intelligence. And we've made this fundamental mistake of thinking there's a sort of synonymous relationship between mind and brain. Yeah. And so, well, look, the brain is in the head and we know where it is, but mind suffuses the body. There's no cell that doesn't participate in its thinking. And so to liberate the thinking from the head is at the same time to liberate your thinking from that decontextualized, stripped away, abstract focus that the left brain excels at. And that journey down through the body you begin to explore the geography and you begin to get a sense of what is most trustworthy. And again, McGilchrist comes back to this time and time again, that it is the right brain that is grounded in reality. He looks at all these, um, just as a side note, all these cases where a lesion in the right brain, so when the right brain is incapacitated, that is when you get delusions and madness and all these strange psychiatric disorders. And it almost never happens if there's a lesion in the left brain. It's just so interesting. So to experience that geography, in my book, Radical Wholeness, I call it a speleology of the body. And speleology is just a term that means exploring caves. And to me, the <laughs> cavern of the body is there to be explored and to drop down through it and just see what it has to offer. When I do the exercise, when I talk people through it, I never prompt them 
as to what they're likely to find or should find. No, find for yourself what is there. And it's one simple way to begin to trust that deeper intelligence of the body as you land on the pelvic floor and feel an answer birthed out of a wholeness rather than a a limited range of parameters. Another huge revelation in your classes was how instantaneously we can be present, feel the present, enjoy the present, simply by making that descent into the sensational experience of the pelvic bowl. It isn't just a thought of, oh, I'm just going to keep breathing and count my breaths or say a mantra enough times or be good and good and good for a number of years so that I can reach this consistent state of presence. It's really immediate. And that's one of the things that impresses me most about your work is that it gives people a map to really learning how to find that presence that's always available just by, as I call it, moving your mind into matter, really recognizing that you can move it. Consciousness is mobile in the body and that the more you move it downwards and throughout your experience of reality and presence and self is going to entirely change. And it can be as simple as that. Yeah, and there's so much work that is out there, some of which has great stuff to offer, but the premise of it is you are living by the wrong ideas. These imperfect ideas, just let go of those and take on these correct ideas and your life will be better. And it's all top down. It's all part of this huge cultural shift whereby we let me say this and then contextualize it, we demean the female and exalt the male. And, and, and the context through which I understand that is within the body. I feel that intelligence in the pelvic bowl as the female pole of my consciousness. And I feel the head as the male pole of my consciousness. And they are meant to work together. And what's happened is We've turned our back on the female in the body as we raised, I mean, this phrase, raise your consciousness. I shrivel inside when I hear people urging others to raise their consciousness as though living up in the head isn't enough. You need to, you know, actually leave the head, leave the body altogether. So occasionally I'll give a talk and I'll call the talk, lower your consciousness. And I think our relationship with the earth, you you mentioned matter our our word matter our word material etymologically means mother and you look at our relationship with the earth that we are striving to to get as far away from as we can as we raise our consciousness and we have forgotten how to rest on it we don't trust it where's hell hell is beneath our feet in this planet that sustains our every breath. That's where our eschatology has placed it. And heaven is in that rarefied, lifeless space above the atmosphere. And the, the, the trampling and demeaning of all things female, I, I was thinking about 
shoes and, and how we desensitize the feet and cramp them and stifle their life and, and stop feeling the earth. And put heels on them. And put high heels on them, yeah. And to walk barefoot is to come into a completely different relationship with that mother beneath us. It's idea, our marriage to idea, our marriage to known relationship has eclipsed our relationship to felt relationship. And we are so busy wanting to know everything. As a consequence, I look around me and, and I know what everything is. There's nothing I see that I don't know what it is. So then why would I bother feeling any of it, right? But you come into felt relationship, you drop down through the body and attune to what is there and suddenly it is alive and it is whispering to you and there is guidance in every moment of the present urging you forward. You make life sound so exciting. <laughs> you remind me that it is and that it can be. Thank you, Philip. Yeah, it's the most exciting thing I've ever encountered. Yeah. <laughs> so how do you explain this profound revulsion to the feminine that is so prevalent throughout a lot of time mm. and a lot of space? We have staked our future on control. So with agriculture and controlling the land and, and controlling animals. And, our, you know, it's funny, our relationship with the animals we domesticate is a parallel of the relationship we imagine between the God in the heaven and us. We determine what they will do. We, we determine where they will be. When they have offspring, we own those offspring. We determine the moment of their death. It's such a godlike relationship we have to our domesticated um, animals. Unless and, you've never had a chihuahua. <laughs> oh, well, apart from chihuahuas. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but, I, you know, the chickens, the pigs, the, the goats, oh, the cows. I, yeah. In giving our allegiance to control, what did we remove our allegiance from? We removed it from harmony. So there is a harmony that abides in the world that carries all of nature forward that we used to attune to and thrive in. And people think that, that order and harmony are, are the same thing. And to me, they're opposites. Again, both are needed. Without order, you and I wouldn't have met at the right time to have a chat. But as our allegiance to the left brain has obscured our ability to feel harmony, it has led us more and more to need and rely on control. I was going to say the illusion of control, and often it is an illusion. And, you know, we've strayed so far in that direction that our entire understanding of thought has been, I think, perverted. You know, when I say every cell in the body participates in its thinking, I'm not talking about verbal thinking, of course, but then what am I talking about? I think in its essence, thought is the processing of a relationship. So you can process the relationship between the numerals one and two, 
and realize, oh, when you add them, they're three. And when you subtract one from two, it's one. And when you multiply them, it's two. And there's so many ways of exploring that relationship. But the body <laughs> is processing billions of relationships every minute. That too is thought. Those relationships aren't just the sort of biochemical relationships of the body. They are relationships with the world that holds us. There's a writer, Ilarion Merkuliev, and he's an elder of the Aleut Nation. And the Aleut Nation lives on those islands that trail off Alaska that separate the Bering Sea from the Pacific. And he talks about, was well, a four-year-old, he would go where the men were and they were hunters. They hunted sea lions and their relationship to the sea lion was like the relationship of the Plains Indians to the buffalo. And they would sit on these rocks looking out at the sea for hours, not daydreaming in a passive state, but alert. And then one of them would say sea lion coming and all the heads would look in the same direction. Now the sea lion might have been 10 miles offshore. It couldn't be seen, but it could be felt. And Alarion, as a child, wondered how the men could stay alert for that long and how they could feel the sea lion. And one day he was walking under the cliffs where thousands and thousands of birds fly, and not just one species, but dozens of species. And no bird ever clipped the wing of another bird. And he's saying, how is that possible? And what he came to was that they weren't thinking. They were just feeling. And he trained himself to go for hours and hours without that sort of commentary, that verbalizable commentary going through his head. And then he too could feel the sea lion 10 miles offshore. He could feel when he caught a fish. He could tell what what species it was, even though it was way below the water and he couldn't see it, but he could feel it. And I think of the uh, writer Hugh Brody, anthropologist, spent a lot of time up north in a, an Inuit hunting village. They were hunting whales. It wasn't a village, it was an encampment by this open stretch of water. And this elderly Inuman, who was known as a great whale hunter, Igruk, his name was, lying down on a bed of furs in the corner. And at a certain point, he sat up and he said, I think a whale is coming, and I think it will breach very soon. Well, people heard that and rushed out of the tent and waited by the water, and sure enough, this whale breached. So there he was, lying on his bed of furs, and he could feel the presence of that whale beneath the ice coming closer. That is the faculty that enabled us as a species to survive. We could feel the medicine in plants. We could feel the animals in the forest around us. We were guided by this attunement to the present. You know, it's a sensitivity that comes to the fore when your life depends on it. Mm -hmm. And we don't even know it exists. We don't even know it's there to be found. We think that our task is to outthink life and outthink our problems. And it's, an <laughs> it's, a, it's a very special agony, I think, to be caught in that round and round and round process of trying to outthink everything in your life. Mm. You know, you're speaking about something that I am 
particularly fascinated with and was teaching about recently, which is body mapping, body maps and peripersonal space and how we map what's around us to varying degrees, depending on the body and the context that we experience, for example, a tennis racket, we will map it as an extension of our own flesh. And we also have this extension of our proprioception to be a part of a community. I mean, I watch that in the sheep that live right across the fence. People think of them as so stupid when I'm just absolutely fascinated by this exquisite sensitivity that, as you're describing, one moves an ear and they all respond almost like the grass is in the winds here. It's like a communal body that I'm watching, which is why, of course, they go off cliffs and they have all these terrible reputations because of this exquisite communal capacity that they have. So it doesn't surprise me that there used to be and still are on the planet people that can extend their own bodies to such an extent beyond their own skin that they're mapping the world around them and have this empathic connection, which in family constellation work, we're relying on all the time. We just attune, we choose what we're going to attune to, because of course, he's not tracking every fish in the sea. He's choosing, he's putting that dial at a particular frequency frequency for a whale being to keep his consciousness awake. So anyway, on one hand, I passionately feel and advocate that we are our bodies. And I also know that you have this exquisite sensibility and teaching about how our bodies are not just this form, that our bodies are permeable. And that there isn't really such a thing as boundaries that a lot of people get really hung up about. And I want to talk to you about that because then it gets into the the question of safety and trauma and all that other stuff. If we are so permeable, if we are just as sensitive and available to the world as you're describing in that particular context, how can we possibly navigate this much stimuli and the negativity and all the horror that's also going on in the world, as well as receive all the love that there's probably is for us beyond what we, I usually imagine anyway. So what do you think about all that? Well, (laughs) (laughs) to me, the confusion by which we identify uh, harmony and order and think they're the same thing, we've done that with safety and security. And to me, they're very different things. So safety, I mean, in my decades on this planet, it's it struck me that life isn't safe. I mean, you're going to get hurt. You're going to get sick. You're going to feel grief and loss. You're going to die. Life isn't safe. And that urge to build safety as we have come to understand it, which is an expression of control, in many of its respects is Mm anti-life. We are building the fortress to keep life at bay, which could also be understood as building a fortress to keep life from intruding on us and teaching us in ways that maybe we feel we're not ready for. 
we don't want to change. We want to hold still within the fortress and, and be safe. And again, you know, complementary opposites. There is a place for safety. You don't just step off the sidewalk into moving traffic. But home, just as home, you know, isn't the left brain, home isn't the head, home is the pelvic bowl, home is insecurity. And there is one security that no one can take from you which is the security of your being. And to come home to that security, even in the midst of pain and loss and grief, to come home to that security is to come home to the present and it's okay. What is happening, me, I'm okay. And you know, my belief is you can dwell within that security right up to the moment of your death. That the thought I am dying can raise panic, but equal to I am dying is I am alive in this experience. And to come home to the security of your being is necessarily to reclaim what our culture has banished from our awareness, that the legs, the pelvic bowl, that whole deeply grounded, attuned part of the body. I mean, legs in our culture, they become prosthetics. They've gone to sleep. They perambulate us about, but they thrive with intelligence. My legs know this room, know this moment in a way that is unique to them. And to include that in my experience of the present is to be nourished by it. I'm just sitting here smiling. <laughs> Nourishment. <laughs> yeah, whenever I'm afraid, when I remember, if I move my consciousness and my sensational awareness into my lower body, I'm so much less afraid. And on the contrary, abstract thought is frightening. Yes. You know? I mean, it obviously gives us art and it gives us all kinds of flights of fancy and fantasy and imagination and vision and all these amazing things. But it also gives us paranoia, delusion, as you said, you know, worry. I'm an epic worrier. So there's all these things are just right into the left brain and I leave my lower body and then I'm afraid. And you really taught me you can just, okay, just go right back down, you know, yeah. just it shifts really quickly. Yeah, and just to name the elephant in the room, there is a value system in our culture that has been encoded in our neurology that says up is good and down is bad. And that lives within the body. And if I say, Ellie, you're looking a little down today, there's no ambiguity in the statement. Down is bad. And just to say, in another culture, you're looking down might mean you're looking at peace with yourself and at rest on the earth. How wonderful. Just as to say you're looking up today in another culture might mean you're looking a little ungrounded and flighty. Are you okay? So there's this arbitrariness, but our very impulse neurologically is to go up in the face of a threat, in the face of danger or overwhelm. The head will sort it out. Go up to the head. It'll take charge. It'll get things right. It'll figure it all out. And to counter that deeply encoded message and 
allow yourself to drop is is to surrender at a time when it seems that what is needed is more control. And it's a very difficult choice to make. But when I drop down to the pelvic bowl, it isn't a hmm, willful act. It is an undoing. It is a surrender that boom, lands me here in this moment. And we're mistrustful of surrender And part of that is our understanding of vigilance, that we think this busy, contracted, highly focused intelligence will keep us safe. It's the sort of master of vigilance. And what I've found is that there is a vigilance to the present that feels every little pulse moving through it. And if I can join the present, I partake of its vigilance, and that will keep me safe in a way that this overwrought intelligence in the head just can't. Well, there's also in that a quality of trust. Even if life hurts us, so to speak, as as the spiritual teacher Matt Kahn talks about a lot, everything is here to help you, no matter how bad it feels temporarily, if you can trust that absolutely everything that happens and how it happens is perfect for your own evolution, then there can be more of a surrender to whatever come what may. Easier than sometimes. The way I phrase that is there are no obstructions. There is only guidance. And Mm -hmm. it, it looks like an obstruction. And in retrospect, it's guidance. And I love the word trust. I seem to be on an etymological roll today because the word (laughs) trust comes from the word tree. Mm. And I think of a tree and its roots sunk deep in the earth and this massive body reaching up and opening to the sky. And it is the unity of earth and sky. It is so present. And our trust is born of that, that the same relationships. The same relationships. That was big. I really felt that one. So I want to come back around to this whole tendency, if not almost requirement, to come up in the body. How much of this has to do with getting away from the genitals? With the contraction into the head, we contract into a sense of being independent. I'm not lobbying for your vote here, but if I were the emperor of the world... I would banish the word independent because it doesn't refer to anything. It's a fantasy. You can't point to one example of independence in all the cosmos. Everything affects everything. Everything leans on everything. So independence is a fantasy, but you move into the head and you dissociate from the body and suddenly you feel alone and independent and you're in here and the world is out there. And then our relationship to sex and to the genitals becomes one concerned with my performance and my needs. And to me, it perverts what the most fulfilling act of love can bless us with. And let me put some context on that. You know, I spoke of the love that moves everything forward. There is a source of light that loves life. 
and nurtured the first little single cell, the first virus, the first single cell, the first, you know, reptile, the first mammal, the plants. There is this love of life and diversity and play, and it is moving through each of us. It's through the genitals that that source of light most clearly shines. But when you move into the head, you've contracted from that. So yeah, that movement to the head is a denial of the source at the same time. We feel sort of self-sufficient. We feel independent, you know, stand on your own feet, be independent. And, and again, the surrender to feel the light in the pelvic bowl, to feel the light in the genitals and to understand that light goes back, back, back to a source that is timeless and it shines through you and to allow that to happen and to just bask in it and let it carry you. To me, that returns us to something so much larger than we are without without losing any little bit of the personal experience that is at the heart of it. I have a lot of different thoughts about that. It's a bit of a chicken or an egg. The religion came in and it was made bad, et cetera, et cetera, because of how one doesn't need a priest if you can commune with God through your own body. The whole structure of power is annihilated as long as we keep this capacity to connect and commune within ourselves. I just suspect that so much of the leaving is certainly, as you're talking about, wanting to have control and wanting to play super left brain and all of this. But I think it's a chicken or an egg because the less one is able to feel one's body, to be in the vulnerability of sharing that feeling and sexuality and light and pleasure, as you say, there's such inherent vulnerability to it that it can make a lot of people want to go up and stay up and stay in the control over the other because of fear of performance, because of fear of inadequacy, because of fear of dependency and love and all the things that we can fear in that aliveness. So I loved hearing what you wanted to talk about because we don't often even talk about the pelvis unless we're referring to genitals and sexuality and the reproductive system, quote unquote, you know? Yeah, or medical issues or, <laughs> or yeah, medical issues, yeah. Sterilized area that, totally. that totally. yeah, and it is the Garden of Eden. It is fecund and alive and attuned and innocent and all feeling and the exile from the Garden of Eden to me is, is at least on one level, that exile from the pelvic bowl that yeah. led us into this place of eternal toil as the Bible presents it. Yeah. And how to come back. And you've also talked about how when you've been in conflict or difficult emotion, that you'll also go down into the pelvic bowl, into the lower part of your body in order to process, I don't know if you use the word process, but integrate, I think is the word you've used. Most of us, when we're in some sort of difficulty, we'll go into our head and try and figure our way through it and get in inner arguments about blame and defensiveness and even anger without really feeling it or moving it through the body. So I wanted to also bring that in as another aspect of the lower being is this capacity it has to 
actually, as you say, integrate our challenges. And I'd love for you to talk about that as well. Yeah, for me, personally, any reactivity I feel within myself points to an energy that's not integrated. Any unintegrated energy is reactive. And, and, and again, I distinguish between reactivity and responsiveness. You know, the whole can respond. I can speak from my wholeness or I can react from a, a part of me. That agitation, the circumstances, all the rest of it is, it's like if you imagine a, a murmuration of starlings, I don't know if you know these gorgeous sure. clouds, it's like amoebas in the sky that elongate and ripple and descend. And you imagine one starling that's not part of that flock that murmuration and its flight is erratic and it is alone and then it joins the murmuration and its flight is harmonized by the whole and it adds a new sensitivity to the whole it adds a new awareness the eyes the ears the ability to feel the world around it so that process of dropping down through the body is one in which i'm going from a realm in the geography of my body's intelligence that deals in bits and pieces like that lone starling and bringing it down and i really feel the center of my being in the pelvic bowl and to bring it down and allow it to join the pelvic bowl just as the flight of the starling is harmonized by the whole that issue whatever it might be is contextualized by the whole and it's not that if i bring it down it, i will be peaceful it may be that if i bring it down i will run fast in the other direction or shout or who knows but it will be the whole of my being responding in harmony rather than this reactive part of me that is dissociated from that larger attunement Love that. Can you give an example of that anytime recently when there's been some conflict or something in your life? It happens every day and it happens almost habitually now. Um, my wife, Allison, and I just celebrated our 33rd wedding anniversary. It, you know, in the course of a day, there are these little irritations, little reactivities that might come up. And it's just a habit now where I feel that and drop it down and more often than not instead of anger there's laughter i don't go down with an expectation of the outcome it is as i said it's a surrender to my wholeness another way of saying it if, if i'm at a bar and there's a really attractive woman and we start talking we're having a good time if my wife isn't there with me, I am out of wholeness. So everything that happens between us, either I've neglected this huge part of my life and I've come out of my wholeness, or it is there and everything that happens is tempered by this primary relationship that means so much to me which doesn't require her physical presence. It's just your experience of her presence, your deep acknowledgement of it, right? 
the way it feels to me is it's my wholeness. Yeah. Well, my wholeness, of course, envelops that relationship. It's part of my wholeness and that um, drive that that is there with an attractive woman is fine, held in wholeness. Mm. And I know I can feel myself contract, like it's literally a sense of contracting out of wholeness, you know, in the pursuit of some dopamine effect that we all tend to seek. Is the contraction out of fear? Fear that somehow you won't stay in that wholeness the contraction is, oh, this feels good. Let's put this other part of my life that would warn against this or that this might threaten. Let's put that in a cloud of darkness for the moment and just enjoy this encounter. You're talking about compartmentalization more yeah. than this yeah. fear that, oh God, I'm going to do, I could potentially do the wrong thing and cut off no. my nose, bite my face. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's the compartmentalization. Yeah. That, yeah. It's contracting. Yeah. 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 And I, I feel that in my body. I feel that just that initial wave of whom control. It just feels awful. And so I've learned to dilate. Mm. Yeah. And a lot of that takes me back to foreground background, how we're taught that left brain contraction, focusing on the foreground and to feel not just this other person with whom you're speaking, but to feel this other person within this space, at this moment, on this planet. Rather than stripping away the specificity of who they are, that dilation enhances it, it contextualizes it, it, it heightens it. We're taught to give someone our undivided attention that abstracts them and makes the conversation more difficult rather than allowing the world to be part of what is transpiring. My version of that is going into a museum and seeing a really beautiful object, <laughs> like an artifact. And then I'm like, I want it. <laughs> I want it. <laughs> And then I forget that, wait, this is a museum and the whole world can experience this beauty. It doesn't have to just be mine. And yet that instinct, it can be really strong, whether it's a beautiful woman or it's a beautiful work of art, for sure. It's basically a sharing as well. And then all the world shines through that object. Yeah. Rather than it containing its own separate light. Yeah. Yeah. And just being on my shelf, where only a few parallels <laughs> instead of thousands and thousands and thousands. Yeah. 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 Not always easy to share, though, is it? <laughs> no, it, it, it's something our culture really doesn't do much to help us so, navigate. <laughs> hey, I want to come back to a couple things. Before I met you, I was certainly aware of the Dantian having grown up as a dancer. But I just wanted to clarify, this is not the same thing you're talking about, because that's a big damn deal. This is a few inches down 
and it makes a big difference. So I just wanted for everyone's sake, who's listening to just really be able to distinguish, because I'm sure there's a lot of people who are martial artists or dancers or have heard these terms, Hara or Dantian, and this is not the same thing. And I want to know how you went those few inches that make such a difference. Yeah, the Dantian was brought into cultural awareness at a time when there were no machines, there were no books, that it was a completely different, grounded, spacious um, environment that was inescapably a part of nature. And so the Dantian is this natural center that abides within that. But our culture has gone so high, so abstract, that for me, until you drop down those other few inches, it's not enough to counteract that pull up to the head. And the Dantian is this point around the second chakra, just below the belly button, that is a natural center. And it's no longer our center because we've gone so high, we need to drop further down to the perineum. You can be an inch above the perineum and you're not quite there and then you drop down that last little inch and it is like a phase shift in your being it's like ice turning into water it is a complete transformation when the center of your awareness drops down there i mentioned i went on this bike trip when i was 18 and actually went to england and bought a bicycle and headed off for japan and cycled through Europe and the Middle East and India and Japan. And the crux of what drove me to that was a sense of rage mm. on the perineum. And it was a rage at my being that felt it was compromised by everything in my culture. It was like a battle for my life where the values and ideas of success and ideas of proper and improper behavior. The adults in my world seemed to be living out this fantasy and inviting me to join it. And the path was so clear, you know, graduate high school, go to university, marry, get a job, get a house. It was like laid out for me and it required a compromise of my being that I wasn't willing to make. And there was this rage on the perineum. And yeah, yeah, I remember sitting, feeling that deep, deep knowing. And it was like, what have I got to lose? Let's go buy a bike and take off for Japan. It's on your perineum of miles. I mean, isn't that interesting? Yeah, absolutely. And to tell you the truth, I, I didn't really expect to come back alive. You know, it's not, oh, I'll be fine. It's bring it on, whatever it is. I'll meet it as I can. I mean, how do you cycle alone through the Middle East expecting everything to be fine? But I knew that if I didn't go, that some more essential part of my life would perish. And so the awareness of the perineum was there. And then I studied um, energy healing with Denise Chagnon, for whom the perineum 
was crucially important. And his story is pretty interesting because he was given three weeks to live with cancer and was coming back to the perineum that began his journey of healing. And that was, I think that was 1996 and he's still alive and well today. What was that like having this constant presence or pressure of that bicycle seat right between your legs, right at the base of your body like that? Did it alleviate that rage? Did it, did it help integrate it? Did it massage it or comfort it or intensify it? How much of that physical experience interacting with your perineum was part of this revelation? Still to this day, there's something in the experience of riding my bicycle that is effortlessly an experience of, I am here and I am free. Mm. And I think that connection with the perineum really grounds me in that. And the rage dissipated. I was gone for two years and when I came home, I experienced culture shock for the first time. It's like everything was so familiar. And at the same time, it was so utterly arbitrary. It sounds like you were born with culture shock. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think there's something, there's something to that. But the essence of it is I came home with the ability to question my own culture. And I think the most difficult thing in the world to question is what you've habituated to. And so it took me those two years of traveling through so many different cultures and on a bike, you're just permeable to the world. And every culture I pass through is luminous and every culture I pass through is limited. And what I gained in the ability to question my own culture has stood me in good stead the rest of my life. Again, I'm just really struck with how so much power and contact and permeability is in the same anatomical place as our genitals and as our sexual pleasure center or one of them. Yeah. And I find that just really provocative and evocative and just really fascinating. It's the center of life within the body is how it feels to me. The, the guy who first discovered the brain in the pelvic bowl, in the abdomen, Byron Robinson said, you can be brain dead and still be kept alive. But if the second brain, if this brain in the belly isn't operating, you die right away. You, it is the first brain. It's not the second, like in evolutionary terms, it's the first brain. It's where we're held in the womb as we grow within our mothers. It is the center not just of life in general, but of our life. It's when you come back to that place that you are dipping into the very center of the sensational center of this moment in this place, this aliveness. Yeah. And isn't it something that any kind of sexual assault oh. Oh. reaches exactly can reach exactly into that place that the seat of our being resides, which and, of course is why it's such an effective weapon. Uh, yeah, uh, for me, there's this complementary opposites, vulnerability and strength. A mother's greatest vulnerability is her children and her greatest strength is her children. And this strength of our 
life energy, our sexual energy, our love of life is also for that reason, our greatest vulnerability that, that an assault on it damages us where we're most vulnerable. Yeah. So do you find that when your students come in who have experienced some kind of sexual assault that they might have more difficulty, but also I imagine more regeneration from doing this work? Yeah, the difficult thing with people who have been traumatized in that way is the desire for an outcome. And that can override what we're trying to achieve, which is to come back to a sensitivity. And so what I stress is the gentleness and the subtlety. How subtly can you feel the breath on the pelvic floor? And can you feel it more subtly? And with the breath on the pelvic floor, what happens is you are bringing awareness, you're bringing new sensitivity to what I feel as the ground of my being. When I come home to myself, that's where I land. When I want to abide in my deepest truth, that's where I land. And to have desensitized the pelvic floor is to have deprived yourself of access to coming home to yourself, of, of coming to rest in the body. And so that gentle, subtle approach to me is what is most effective in slowly, patiently bringing sensitivity back. And sensitivity, just to say, we tend to demean sensitivity at times. We talk about somebody, oh, they're too sensitive. And I think we've really denatured our understanding of our own intelligence when we speak of intelligence as an IQ. It's the ability to reason in an abstract fashion. That's a part of our intelligence. But to me, the foundation of our intelligence is sensitivity. And there are countless sensitivities, a sensitivity to a sea lion 10 miles offshore, to a child's tears, to a murmuration of starlings, to the breeze that, that you feel on your cheek. There, there are countless sensitivities, but every single sensitivity is a form of intelligence. And again, you need the complementary opposites because a sensitivity by itself is reactive. If the retina didn't react to light, you wouldn't see. And so how to ground that sensitivity that its information might become coherent. And so to me, intelligence is grounded sensitivity. And to bring sensitivity back to the body, back to the pelvic floor especially, is to enable yourself to live more intelligently. And we, you know, we as a culture, there's never been a cleverer culture on the face of the earth than ours. But we have patently forgotten how to live intelligently. Mm. And I think until we come back to our true intelligence, despite all our flailing and new technologies and brilliant solutions, we will not recover that ability. Well, as you're saying, sensitivity requires a body to feel it. So there we come full circle to the brilliant body. Yeah. Brilliant body is a sensitive body. It's a sensitive being. It is our sensitivity. Yeah. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Yeah, and there are sensitivities within it. No one will ever explore all of them. No one will have the sensitivity of Mozart and the sensitivity of an Elliot Hunter or Igruk on his furs feeling the whale or the sensitivity of medicinal healers. No one will have all of them, but we're each born with this cluster of gifts. And I think the world is whispering to us to put those gifts into service, that phenomenal amalgam of sensitivities. And until you come back to the body, until you disencumber yourself of being in charge of yourself, how can you hear that whispering that is calling you onto your true path? I'm glad our paths brought us together, Philip. Uh, me too. <laughs> I listened. <laughs> I love when you told me, saw the flyer, I was giving a talk, I think, on embodiment. And you're, what is, what does this guy know about embodiment anyway? I'm going to go check him out. <laughs> well, you're leaving out the part where it said you were an embodiment authority. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was the word authority that yeah, no. caught That's my craw. That's a bit much. I, it would get my craw too. <laughs> and then I went and I was like, damn, he really is. He really <laughs> are. Hey, we could talk and talk and talk. And if you will so allow us, let's do a part two sometime. Because we haven't even gotten to like AI or I haven't even asked you one question I prepared ahead of time. But I am going to ask you just hopefully three more questions. One of the titles of your book is Radical Wholeness. What is radical about wholeness in your view? So the word radical, etymologically, comes from the word for root. And so it's radical in the sense that it is rooted utterly in the present. And that the surrender that enables that is the surrender to your own wholeness, which is in no way separate from the present. And the other thing that's radical about it is within our culture, it is absolutely countercultural. Our culture does not recognize wholeness. We, we are trained out of it. We don't know what it is to speak from our wholeness. We don't know what it is to listen from our wholeness. We don't know what it is to face an issue with the whole of our being. We defer to the head. We defer to the head. And so it's, it's radical in that it's outside of the limited box within which our culture says the answers are to be found. So if you were recreating second grade, 7th grade, and 10th grade, what would school be like for young people in honor of wholeness? There are sort of two parts to that. One is school would first and foremost honor and stoke the curiosity of every child. And that is the child's greatest resource. Those gifts are resonating to the world and the child will be drawn. And the child that really wants to play music We'll learn how to read notes on a page, given half a chance. And the other side to that is that our economy demeans service and wants only wealth generation. And to honor a child's curiosity, you can't have one person in charge of 30 little kids. You, you need 
to gather around the children in our society and support them and nourish them. And the teachers should be paid, in my books, 10 times what they're paid now. You know, what they have to offer the future is so much more important to the future than what most CEOs have to offer it. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And carpenters too, by the way, having just renovated a place. Yeah, I'm not lobbying, but if I were the emperor of the world, you wouldn't be able to make a washing machine or a dishwasher that couldn't be easily repaired. They should be made to last for 50 years. There's no reason not to, but they're made so that they're difficult to repair. And the repairman comes and says, well, it's going to cost you know, $600 to replace it, but for a thousand, you may as well get a new one. And so you throw it in the garbage and it's just a, a demeaning of what is material in our world. We call ourselves a materialist society, but we don't love material goods. We cheapen them. We, we discard them. We go through them as quickly as we can. And when we do, that helps the economy because the economy is posited on infinite growth. It, you can't have infinite growth on a finite planet. Yeah. I've had two questions and now we're into about six already. Um, what do you think about our culture, our language in English, probably not all languages do this, but that we refer to the body as it? It's such a left brain assessment. Everything is an it, right? I talk about dropping into the body and what the body most deeply recognizes is that everything is alive, even this stupid plastic pen. And that's the opposite of the assessment of sitting in your head. Everything's dead, right? Everything is an object. It separates and objectifies everything. And that's inevitable with the body. And to a certain extent, there's a place for that. If your arm is broken, it needs to be fixed. <laughs> it needs to be fixed, right? The bones need to be reset. So there is that part of it that has some value. But this whole cultural thing, I am not my body. Well, then why, when I pinch your arm, does it hurt you? I am most fully me when I am most fully embodied. Amen. Yeah. So how do you define embodiment in a sentence or two or three? I think embodiment is a state in which the whole of your intelligence comes into coherence with the present. Boom. Yeah. Yeah. And what do you like best about being your body? There is such a deep love in my body, a love of this moment, of this life, of all of its weird and wonderful turns and crazy, crazy diversity and gifts and griefs. Yeah. Thanks for being with me, Philip. It is such a joy and it would be such a joy to revisit for part two if that time comes when that feels right to you. I could talk to you for hours and days and years, so we'll keep it going. Thanks again for accepting my invitation. It's just wonderful to talk with you. It really is. I hope you found this episode inspiring. 
If you haven't already, please subscribe to the Brilliant Body Podcast and spread the word to all the other brilliant bodies you know who might be interested in some insight and inspiration. If you'd like to learn more about the many ways I'm encouraging and guiding the wider world to reclaim the brilliance of the body, please visit my website at www.alimezey.com. Thanks so much for listening. Until the next episode and beyond, reclaim your brilliant body. This episode was hosted, produced, and edited by me, Ali Mazay. Thanks for additional editing to Rachel Fell and Nina Damour. Thanks to Florence Popoff for my social media management and to Blair, Mr. One Man Band Wilson for my theme music. <laughs>